Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday, everyone, and I want to say thank you for joining me for this live stream. I trust that by God's grace, you and your family are doing well. I am very excited to bring you this new teaching tonight. I know I haven't done a new teaching in a minute, but uh, midterm elections are coming, and I wanted to try to help offer a few thoughts about um how to think through kind of political issues and questions from a Christian worldview standpoint. This is a stream that I've had in mind to do for many years, actually. I wanted to address tonight three common errors that I see when it comes to Christians and politics, but also more than that, try to present a positive vision uh, for what we can do as Christians as we are engaging in the public square. Let's get into it because there are more and more uh, Big Eva voices out there. What I mean by Big Eva, sometimes I will use that as a shorthand way to refer to, you know, you might have heard like Big Tech or Big Pharma, the well-financed Um, These are the official voices that we recognize, and these are the official positions that are the official positions that we have to have as Christians. That's what I call Big Eva. Um, I am not part of Big Eva. I am not part of the well-financed machine. I'm over here in a tiny corner of the internet um, just trying to hammer things out. But what I am noticing is that there are more and more Big Eva voices out there uh, coming out to say, that Christians should really stay out of politics and not choose sides. For example, last weekend, uh, I read the book, uh, Not In It to Win It by Andy Stanley. It's on Amazon. I'm not going to be giving a full-length review. I'm just going to touch on a few points here in the book. But reading the book is really what inspired me to put this stream together finally. And this book by Andy Stanley, Not In It to Win It, seems to be part of a growing genre of books, kind of all with a similar message. And that is Christians should not take sides in politics. And um, this book seems aimed uh, to address one of the, the common errors that I see that some Christians fall into when it comes to discussions about politics. And so the first one, the first error that I see that Christians fall into sometimes when it comes to politics is that politics are of first importance. And I really think that that's um, what Stanley's book is aimed to address, is this error that that politics are of first importance. Over and over and over in the book, uh, Andy Stanley says things to the effect and variations on the theme that Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. Stanley's idea is that um, because earthly institutions are always um, shaped and, and corrupted by sin, the both the left and the right have political idols that they fall into. 
kind of the gist of it in his strategy that he builds out for the reader is that different Christians think differently about how positions should be prioritized. Some will say because candidate one gets issues A, D, and E right, I'm going to vote for him. While other Christians will say because candidate two gets issues B, C, F, and G right, I'm going to vote for her. Um, And you might, you know, two Christians might agree on issues, but then even rearrange the priority of how problems are resolved. We might agree on the problem, but not the solution is how I'm hearing it more and more discussed. So therefore, the thought is in Andy Stanley's book and in other books, podcasts, articles in this genre of let's not take political size genre, we shouldn't advance a position that there is necessarily a Christian way to vote. Instead, take the way of King Jesus, love everyone, Uh, do justice, love mercy, and that kind of a thing. Uh, This is the general gist of of the strategy. This is a very kind of crude rendition of it, but this is the basic gist of Stanley's argument. This is kind of what I'm seeing more and more out there. Now, I want to respond to this a little bit and try to help equip you to, to think this strategy through. I agree with Andy Stanley on two fairly general and uncontroversial points that I think every Christian should probably agree on. And that is Jesus is King. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And what do we mean when we say he's a King of Kings? In other words, he's the King over all human Kings. Well, why do we say that? Matthew 28, 18 says that all authority under heaven and earth has been given to him. That one day, according to Philippians 2, every knee will bow to him. Jesus is the king. He is the king of kings. That's a fairly uncontroversial point that I think every Christian should agree on. Um, And yes, secondly, it is true that Jesus doesn't subscribe or belong to a political party. That is 100% true. Um, and I think that if I look at what Andy Stanley is saying and other people in this genre, what he means is that our country, our political uh, affiliation doesn't come before our faith. For example, obviously every Christian should agree. They should agree that if you walk by your neighbor's house and you see that uh, uh, they have a sign in their yard promoting what you would say is the wrong candidate, your first instinct shouldn't be, you know, how could they be so dumb necessarily? Um, as a Christian, we ought to, you know, work toward disciplining our minds that our first thought should be, I wonder if they know Jesus, or I wonder how I can pray for them. Um, I wonder if this person needs the gospel. And uh, you know, to, to ask the Lord for an opportunity to be able to engage with our neighbors. And, and again, these are all fairly non-controversial points that I think that thoughtful, biblically informed, mature Christians should agree on. And if you don't agree on these points, um, I want to encourage you to maybe uh, get more engaged with the scriptures 
on these matters because th these are fairly foundational ideas. Now, once again, I'm discussing uh, in brief Andy Stanley's recent, recently out book, recent-ish book, Not In It to Win It. And Andy Stanley also emphasizes over and over and over and over again the non-controversial point that the gospel had a transforming effect in the early church and that that transforming effect um, spread and it, it started off with changing people's hearts and eventually ended up in changing an entire empire. Again, I don't dispute this. This is a fairly non-controversial point. Um, Christians uh, shouldn't, we, we ought to care more about where our neighbor spends eternity than um, how they vote. And again, I think we can all agree on this. Uh, yes, the early Christians had a great impact on the culture in which they lived, even though the culture was hostile to them, and that Christians ought to not put politics to be of first importance. In the book, though, and this is what I really see a lot of big Eva voices doing, is that there's a lot of discussion devoted in Andy Stanley's book to his, what I'm going to call, uh, in my opinion, his nebulous vision of love. Um, he doesn't really define love. We're not really sure what his standard is for love. We, do, we aren't really sure how to go about the project of love. We're just kind of supposed to, it seems from the book, uh, intuitively know what the loving things are that we are to do. And in fact, on page 82, he makes this very interesting statement. How we treat, how we talk about, respond to, and care for one another is the identifying mark of a genuine Jesus follower. Not what we believe. Nobody knows and nobody is better off because of what we believe. Doing makes the difference. Doing changed the world. I'm going to read that one more time. How we treat, how we talk about, respond to, and care for one another is the identifying, the identifying mark of a genuine Jesus follower, not what we believe. So in the hierarchy of priorities, Andy Stanley is putting our our engagement, our behavior, how we walk before what we believe. Nobody knows and nobody is better off because of what we believe. Doing makes the difference. Doing changed the world. Now, the most charitable reading of what Andy Stanley is doing here is he's, he's making the point that James makes. Uh, the 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 uh, Saint James in in the epistles that that um, you know if if we just say we have faith and no works that our faith is is dead it's void well absolutely if if we're just walking around like fact checking everybody's theology but we have no fruit in our lives that might be an indication that we're actually not a real Christian okay but in the hierarchy of priorities. Um, it's troubling to me to, to, to put belief as being of second importance because the belief is what shapes 
and informs how we ought to live. I mean, this is the consistent pattern in the epistles. Ephesians 1 to 3 says, here's how you ought to believe. Ephesians 4 to 6 says, here's now how you ought to live. This is the biblical pattern over and over and over and over in Scripture. But at times, Andy Stanley's book, and I've seen other big Eva voices do this, I think this is somewhat a good case study wants to invert that process and just tell people what's more important is how you live, not what you believe. This is not helpful. <laughs> this is not helpful advice. Um, and this does not help us in the discussion about how to engage in the public square, how to think about practical matters that happen to us in the real world where we have to engage in policy setting and voting and serve on boards in our um, homeowners community, everything from that to the PTA, to my job, to hiring, to even serving as a member of the local city school board. If, if I'm just focused on the doing, but I don't, I'm not informed by a standard or a framework, that is not helpful. And this is really my, my main criticism of uh, Andy Stanley's book is it is not at all clear to me after reading this book, how to practically implement what Andy Stanley is saying, what his vision is. Okay. Love my neighbor. Therefore, what does Jesus not care at all? How I vote are all votes kind of equally the same um, because Stanley seems to, if I'm reading him correctly, repeatedly assert kind of that all votes are sort of functionally equivalent. It's just some people emphasize this issue. Some people emphasize this issue, this issue but there's no real standard that guides us that says, you know, no, this vote over here is to be preferred if you're a Christian. He never really clarifies how his method works in the real world or how it applies to um, voting for specific policies. So in Andy Stanley's effort to answer the first concern that I have, the first error, um, which is making your political, political views of first importance, which again, I think that is the main project that Andy Stanley is engaged in, in his effort to answer that concern, in my opinion, he falls headfirst into the second concern, which is politics are of almost no importance. And as if issues have very little connection to the Christian worldview, there's very little specificity. And I see this sentiment really growing among big Eva voices and in many Christians that I observe on social media. And this deeply concerns me. Um, when I am engaging in someone, this happened to me just last week. Uh, when I posted about this live stream, someone immediately came on the thread and said, well, I hope you're going to tell people that politics isn't important because my kingdom is not of this world. You know, Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world. Um, I saw on another thread, yeah, we we can't, Christians can't really have a public conversation about such and such issue, separation of church and state, just vote your conscience. 
And there's all this, well, we just agree to disagree on how to implement things. Um, and again, there's all these kind of platitudes that we say, and then I'm like, yeah, but to act as if voting is complete, all votes are the same, all votes are neutral, and it's that the Christian worldview has no real bearing on the on the real world, which includes the messy world of politics, is, in my opinion, um, not helpful and very confusing. Um, so let's uh, see if we can get to some more clarity, because I think that Andy Stanley typifies the common error here, which is the false dichotomy. It's either um, politics or obey Jesus. It's either state, you worship the state, or you obey Jesus, you obey the church. This, in my opinion, is the false dichotomy that this position puts forward. And again, this is the error that I am calling the um, politics are of almost no importance view. I take a very different approach, and I have outlined a lot of this groundwork in previous teaching series. Um, so these, those, if you're interested in these topics, you want more, go back and watch my series, One Nation Under God. It was a three or four part teaching series that I did um, I believe in 2021, and you can find that on the Theology Mom YouTube channel. More recently, I did a two-part series called Is America Under God's Judgment? So those are some connected teaching series that will be of some help to you on these issues. But I just want to continue to develop our thinking as Christians, you know, as we're engaging in the public sphere. Okay, I'm going to look, glance out at the comments for a minute. Um, Trimeris is saying what we believe should act as a foundation on which we can build. That's right. To me, that's the pattern of, of the epistles is um, believe this way. Paul comes in, corrects our beliefs. Now, in light of that, live this way. Um, how we talk, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat others, etc. Mel says this feels like a false binary. Yeah, that's the false dilemma. Is what we, it's an informal fallacy in logic. Um, Trimera says loving God comes first before loving my neighbor. Yes, in the table of the law, for example, in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are about loving God. The the second grouping, the, the six, are about how to love our neighbor. Okay. Yes, what we believe is of great priority. I, I agree with you. Okay. So let us continue. I think we would do well as we're thinking through how um, Christianity and politics and all of that and how these things um, interconnect or sometimes cross paths with each other, maybe is a better way to say it. I think we would do well to constantly remind ourselves that voting isn't natural. Okay, I don't think we, many people really have reflected deeply on this point. Having a constitutional republic where we vote for people who represent us 
that is not natural. That is not the way the things have normally happened in human history. Most of human history, if you start going back to the beginning, is a history of dictatorships and oligarchies. It is the most common form of government is not a constitutional republic, okay? Now, it might look around, we might look around the landscape, you know, in the last 200 years, and it might seem a little bit, you know, more um, common. But uh, historically speaking, if we were zoom out all the way, you know, and go back to the first civilizations, voting is not natural. Voting and the idea of what we do in America is highly unusual, all right? Most of human history is dictatorships and oligarchies. So the fact that we can vote is a great privilege, and I'm not here to tell you how to vote, but I do want to make an effort to help you understand the real-world implications of the Christian worldview and then help you begin to apply what that might look like when you're setting policies or when you're voting for other people to set policies on your behalf. But I think it's it's just so like in the 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 water that we swim in we we don't even stop to think about how unnatural and how weird it is that we live in a constitutional republic. And and the fact that we have enjoyed like 250 years of a general public life and justice system that's based in large measure on principles from the Bible. I mean, the idea of the of a of our our justice system, our law and order system that we punish the guilty and protect the innocent. That we have a justice system based on multiple lines of evidence and the idea of impartiality. These are these are principles that are deeply biblical and again unnatural. When we look back in the history of humanity, these this is not the normal way that justice flows, okay? Our whole law and order system up until recently has been built on these principles. The idea of a, of a public moral code or shared sense of decency, the idea of personal responsibility or working hard to earn things, the principle of sowing and reaping. These are deeply biblical ideas. And again, not normal. Uh, As my friend Laura Powell, who is with Women in Apologetics, she's lived in third world contexts. And she says, you know, when in other countries, when when you're in countries that, that aren't so informed by the Christian worldview, when somebody dies in the street, they're it's not uncommon for their body to just be left there to die and to rot. You don't call 911. There's nobody to call. There's there's often, even in many places, no hospitals to take people to. But these are things that are just part of the water that we swim in. They're just our ideas of public decency and how we value human life. But we have to understand that these are ideas that 
we share and we have shared for the last 250 years, these are highly strange ideas. Okay. These are unnatural ideas. The human sin nature that humans are born with a sin nature informs and shapes us from birth. Our idea of public decency is kind of an idea of I overcome my sin nature. I don't do the most basest primal thing, right? Why? Because we have a public sense of decency and how we conduct ourselves that historically has been loosely connected to the Christian worldview. I want to commend to you the book, <clears throat> the book that made your world. It's a it's a book written by a Christian philosopher who is from India. And him as a cultural outsider has interesting perspectives looking at the West and helping us understand how our ideas and our structures in our culture have been shaped by Christian principles that we might not even be aware of. Okay. And so these are things that we have just taken for granted. So because we live in this unique situation at a unique time in a unique place, we have a government that operates where regular citizens get to vote for representatives. All right. This is quite a bit different than the world that Christianity was born into. Yeah, there were some seeds of democracy there in ancient Greece and Rome, but quite a bit different and lots of corruption. And so the, the world that early Christianity was born into didn't benefit from, you know, a historically, a, a country historically shaped by public decency, um, shaped by the Christian worldview. It's, it's, it's kind of an apples and oranges situation when Andy Stanley over and over and over again says, you know, Christians shouldn't engage in politics because early Christians didn't engage in politics. Well, that's that's kind of a false analogy to me. Second, I want to draw our attention to the reality that up until about 1963, when prayer was removed from public schools, we generally thought of ourselves as a Christian country, as a country guided by Christian principles, and that that was an okay thing to happen in the public life. When the Supreme Court voted to remove prayer from public schools, we were then saying we are not going to have really uh, the Christian religion as being the focus of public life. Like we're not going to um, have it be part of the public conversation. And, and I do want to make a couple of clarifying points here that just because I'm saying that we were a country guided by Christian principles does not mean that I am saying that each and every law that we had in our country was an accurate representation of biblical teaching or that it was implemented in a biblical way or biblically consistent. Okay. I think that there's aspects of our law courts and our law system that are definitely founded on Christian ideals and principles, but they weren't always implemented according to biblical standards of impartiality. And they were sometimes implemented and executed in unjust ways. Okay, so that's the first clarifying point I want to make. Now, when I'm using saying, too, that when um, 
that we generally thought of ourselves as a country guided by Christian principles. I am not saying that each and every citizen was a, it was a genuine Christian. Um, being a Christian is a matter of our standing before God as individuals. So what I mean by the, this phrase of that we were a country guided by Christian principles is that many of our policies were founded in some way, not all of our policies, but many of them were founded in some way that were informed by the Judeo-Christian worldview. And that there was some level of shared understanding about that among the citizens. But here's the thing. A couple of generations now have passed since 1963. And we have since then been kind of, I think, living off the collateral of the assumptions of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And that period is coming to an end. I think that what we are living in right now is a massive social shift away from a country formed by Christian principles to one that is being formed by, shaped by the critical social theories and postmodernism. So even though, you know, it's taken some time from 1963 to now, couple of generations in there that just like Christianity was sort of lurking in the background and still shaping our thoughts and feelings about public decency, that is changing. And we have a group of the emerging generation that don't have that collateral in the background for the most part and are thoroughly secular in their outlook. And this includes many of our Christian students who are in our churches. The whole, one of the key ideas of the critical social theories is that of disrupting norms. Anything labeled as traditional is now under attack. This is the new sense of public decency, okay? So what I want you to understand is that we're living in this time where we in the past had kind of taken for granted that aspects of public life were somewhat shaped by the Christian worldview. And if we had to give up prayer in public schools, that's okay. Like, you know, still most of us are, you know, decent people and, and we're, we know how to engage with each other. We know what politeness is and we know what common sense is and those things we didn't, may not have known it, but it had some, undercurrent of of connection to the Christian worldview. Well, now we're living in a time where that is no longer the case. That collateral has kind of run out and we are living in a very different time. So I want to give you a couple of examples of this, of the shift taking place and how we as Christians cannot adopt the strategy of Andy Stanley. Like this will not work. It's not going to work to take a position of no position and to not be political. Like that, that posture and strategy is, is simply not going to work. So first I'm going to play a clip from 60 minutes. Hopefully I don't, this whole stream doesn't crash because of, uh, 
copyright problems. But this is from a um, a segment from 60 Minutes a few weeks ago, and it was a, it was an interview between Anderson Cooper, who is a host on 60 Minutes, and um, Bart Barber, who is the recently elected new president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So here is this clip, and then I'm going to come back and help us process it a bit. We asked Barber what he thinks about the Christian nationalist rhetoric increasingly being used by some elected officials like Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. It stands contrary to 400 years of Baptist history and everything I believe about religious liberty. I'm opposed to the idea of Christian dominion, churchly dominion over the operations of government. Why do you object to that? Okay. Uh, I object to it because Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. I object to it because historically, every time it's been adopted, it wound up persecuting people like me. It doesn't stop at persecuting people who are not Christians. It eventually winds up persecuting people who are Christians for whom the flavor of their Christianity is different from that of the government. Support for the separation of church and state was a foundational principle for Baptists who faced religious persecution in England and America in the 1600s. Baptists split in 1845 over slavery, which is when the Southern Baptist Convention was founded. The SBC supported slavery and later segregation. On abortion, the SBC's opposition has hardened over the years. In 1971, they made exceptions in cases where there was, quote, the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. But in 1980, they narrowed that exception only to cases where pregnancy threatened the life of the mother. Bart Barber says he stands by that today. Our interest with abortion is not not to police everybody's sex life. Uh, Our interest with abortion is that we believe that's a human person who deserves to live. There was just a case recently, a 10-year-old girl who was raped, barred from having an abortion in Ohio, was able to obtain one in, in Indiana. I mean, this is a, a little girl who, she has a right to life, too. Sure. Even in that case, you think she should have the child? I do. She should be forced to have the child? I, I think, um, I don't want that to sound like I don't have tremendous compassion for her and her circumstance. I wish we could put an end to 10-year-olds being raped. I'm, I'm trying to work against child sexual abuse because I think that's atrocious. But you don't see forcing a 10-year-old child to go to term with a, a baby that, from rape as abuse of a child? I see it as horrible. I see it as preferable to killing someone else. Not surprisingly okay. horrible. Okay, all right, stop NDS. for a second. Okay, so if you notice the first thing that happened there, um, he Anderson Cooper raises the issue of Christian nationalism. Okay. And then he plays this clip of some woman that I've never heard of, some congressman, saying that the church should direct our lawmakers as an example of what Christian nationalists believe. Well, that's really not what any advocate of the informed advocate of Christian nationalism believes. Now, are there people at the popular level that might believe that? Sure. But as I outlined in my, in detail in my teaching series, One Nation Under God, 
the historic Christian position has been one of advocating for sphere sovereignty. And so that church leadership doesn't direct the government. Now, we can inform and proclaim God's holy uh, standards, uh, eternal moral standards is, is moral law, and try to persuade people in the culture to that. But I'm not aware of a, a mainstream responsible form of Christian nationalism that says that church elders are supposed to be dictating things to politicians. Like this was so the, the whole setup of the conversation right out of the gate is based on um a false analogy. Uh I could also say maybe a red herring, like it's it's just it's a straw man. And so the, the setup from the beginning is, yeah, I'm against Christian nationalism. That's bad. Okay. But then Anderson Cooper, he's a pretty smart guy. He goes right into the discussion about abortion. Well, if we think about it, you know, why, you know, Bart Barber wants to say, well, I am not for Christian nationalism. Okay. But immediately, when we start talking about the um, dignity of the pre-born, well, what's informing that for us as Christians? The idea that, that that baby is fearfully and wonderfully made, that it's it bears the image of God, that Jesus at one time was pre-born and leapt in his mother's womb. I mean, these are profoundly... Christian ideas. And, and so as we are formed by our worldview as Christians, that does play out in the public square of what kinds of officials we want to elect. And so the, the thing is, is that, w that when we say, well, okay, we're not for Christian nationalism. And I got questions about that terminology. But if we're quick to say that, we're going to have to do some work to figure out, um, wait, I'm engaging in a discussion in the public square that's connected deeply to my worldview. And we're going to have to get clear about why we think such and such issue is a good idea or a bad idea. And for the Christian, those things are rooted in the Bible. And so we do actually think that the Bible has something to say to these issues. And as I outlined in my series on um, God's judgment, is God's judgment on America, if a country gets super run over by ungodly demonic policies and laws and injustices, the Lord will take that nation off the map. So it does seem to matter um, how we think about these things, how we interact with our leaders about these things, and how we engage in that public conversation. All right, Bob, go ahead and um, let's let's see what Anderson Cooper here does, because now that he got Bar Bart Barber kind of on the ropes about, um, you know, get, getting, him, getting him to deny Christian nationalism, and then, you know, he, he's got this extreme example about abortion. 
now he's going to move into the LGBT issue and try to really pin Bart Barber and get him on the ropes. SBC opposed same-sex marriage. We're committed to the idea of gender as a gift from God. We're committed to the idea that men and women ought to be united with one another in marriage. Do you still believe that gay people can be, should be converted out of being gay? I believe that sinners should be converted out of being sinners, and that applies to all of us. Can somebody be a good Christian, a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, and be gay or lesbian and married to a person of the same sex? No. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, good Christian. Okay, that gives you the idea. Um, So what I want you to see here is that even if you deny Christian nationalism, even if you say... Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. You were going to have to wrestle with the strong pattern in scripture that God will destroy nations if they violate at, you know, a fairly pervasive way, God's eternal moral law. Like he has a standard that applies to nations, even Gentile nations, pagan nations, okay? Um, And because we live in a constitutional republic, I would submit to you that voting is not neutral. Like, we have to get clear. I mean, did you notice how Bart Barber immediately, on one hand, he says, I am not for Christian nationalism, yada, 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 traditional marriage because it's in the Bible. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just told me you're not for Christian nationalism. This is this is a very confusing um, situation. And I think we're going to, Christians need to get more clear um, about why they believe what they believe and, and figure out how we are going to engage in, in issues in the public square if we want them to be informed by the Christian worldview. Let me give you a second example. Recently, there was a Democratic um, delegate who said that she had planned to reintroduce a bill that would expand her state's definition of child abuse and neglect to include parents or guardians who do not affirm their LGBT children. And she even stated in one interview that she was open to the possibility of making it a misdemeanor or possibly even a felony if parents didn't provide what the the government decides and is gender affirming care access to gender affirming medical care and psychiatric care and she, you know she was talking about getting cps involved and and um with the intent that parents could be harming the children and and maybe setting up a, a database through C- cps um that would potentially affect people's employment because um employers often do background searches before hiring someone so this could have wide implications because basically she wants to criminalize christian parenting or traditional parenting, which remember, in the world of postmodernism and the critical social theories, upheaval on anything that's deemed traditional is the goal. So you could, under this scenario, be considered a child abuser uh, and have it possibly even affect your ability to work. Now, 
this this uh, candidate has backed off from this idea uh, because of the strong backlash. But this should give us a warning about the direction that some people in our government want to go. And again, I want to point out to you that voting is not neutral. This is why I don't think Andy Stanley's vision of painting a picture of, of, you know, well, we all kind of agree on what the issues are. We're just disagreeing on the solutions. I don't think we even agree on what the problems are. Some people think that Christian parenting is a problem. Some people think traditional marriage is the problem. And these things are not clear at all, in, in my opinion, in Andy Stanley's book. But what I really want you to understand is that I, I just don't agree with the idea that voting is neutral and all we're doing is disagreeing about solutions. When we are voting for people in a constitutional republic, we are voting for the policies that they represent. And those policies, it is not uncommon for them to have deep connection to worldview issues. And, and to be very transparent and candid, I, I am big tired of pastors, authors, influencers cautioning us about taking sides in politics. I'm tired of it. This idea of, of like, well, just love your neighbor. Th this will not actually result in a world where justice happens. Real justice must reflect God's justice. Should Christians love others? Absolutely. That is a biblical idea, according to God's moral law. But that topic was concerningly absent from Andy Stanley's book. Without some kind of robust discussion of God's eternal moral law, I honestly have no idea how Andy Stanley or anyone in that stream can get to a discussion about love or justice or how to get those things even off the ground because there's no explicit standard. Without the Bible, there is no justice. Now, I go into a lot of details about this in my teaching series on justice, so I won't rehearse that here, but it's not an either or. It's not either politics or obedience. It can be both. And in some cases, a few critical cases right now, I think it must be both. All right, let's land the plane here. And um, I'm going to, I just want to take one minute and uh, talk to you for a second about my friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. Now, some of you know, I'm a recent empty nester. I've been trying to figure out, like, how can I finish my education? And I've been looking for a way to get an advanced theological ed education that is biblically faithful. So many of the historically conservative seminaries are trying to still hide behind their history, but they are no longer really actually conservative in the classroom. Um, and I also needed a program that was really accessible. I couldn't relocate for a doctoral program that just wasn't available to me. And that's why I'm just super excited to tell you about my friends at Birmingham Theological Seminary. And maybe you can check them out, see if they might be a good fit for you if you're looking for some theological education. The classes are rigorous. 
schedules are very flexible. You don't have to relocate. They have live classes, live engagement with professors on Zoom each week. And the tuition, honestly, is ridiculously affordable um, due to their generous partners and donors. Um, and another feature of, of Birmingham Theological Seminary is that most of the professors are in active ministry. This is so unusual. I know it sounds weird. Like you're going to seminary, they're training you for ministry, but most seminaries you're, you're in like the ivory tower of academia, not at BTS. Most of their professors are active um, pastors and they're actually working in ministry. Um, so go check them out at Birmingham Theological Seminary, see if they're, um, what they're offering might be a good fit for you. It's not for everybody, but see if it's for you and check that out if you're thinking about some theological education. Okay, I want to get to the third point in this teaching. Uh, the first point was that um, we don't want to put such a high priority on politics that it becomes the thing of first importance. But as we're doing that, we don't want to fall headlong into the error of saying that politics is of no importance. Okay. So this brings us to the third point. And um, that is that we need to have some humility because there is this common error of people that I run into who, who think they see and understand all issues totally clearly. Like we need to have a fair amount of humility about ourselves when it comes to talking about these issues and, and engaging in conversations of sharpening with brothers and sisters. We, we all can think of examples where Christians have gotten issues of politics very badly wrong. You know, a hundred years ago, a number of progressive Christians in particular advocated for the idea of eugenics on what my friend, uh, Dr. Joe Miller calls racial hygiene. It's a horrible idea. And now we shudder to think about this, but it was not uncommon um, among many progressive Christians a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, go back even farther. There were Christians on both sides of the Civil War. Both thought that God was on their side. Uh, we go back even farther to our country's founding. Um, our country's founders were influenced by many noble ideas for this grand experiment that we call America. Some of those ideas came from the Christian worldview, but there's also the reality that our founders were sinners. They have blind spots. They did not always implement the noble ideas on which our country was based in a consistent way, in an impartial way. Um, yeah, we said that uh, that there should be equal rights for all, but we didn't have equal rights for all, okay? So sometimes a policy or an issue looks clear to us in the moment, but then we look back and we see oh, you know what, I was wrong in the, in light of deeper Bible study or deeper reflection or more data, okay? Now, I want to bring the conversation into our current moment. Um, some Sometimes we might be a little too quick on social media. We make mistakes. We ought to have a fair amount of humility around ourselves um, that, you know, maybe I didn't do my due diligence. Maybe I, there's more research. Maybe there's more um, time I need to spend in Bible study and reflection. So we do need to exercise due caution 
about tying the church's reputation to certain issues and make sure that we are doing our due diligence to carefully interpret the scriptures. Even so, can can I just say something that should not be controversial, but yet I hear so few voices in Big Eva who are willing to say it? It's okay sometimes to take sides. Christians should always line up with the side of an issue when it clearly aligns with the historic Christian worldview. I'm going to go even one step further. Not only is it sometimes okay to take a side on some issues, I think it's time to take a side on some issues. If a candidate for office wants to criminalize raising kids with a biblical worldview and um, coming against God's moral standard and, and his idea for sex, it should be a no-brainer that that position is something that, that the thoughtful Christian cannot stand shoulder to shoulder with someone advocating that policy. We're going to have to take a side. Um, it, it's, it's, if you don't agree with me, you're not persuaded that um, sometimes it's okay to take a side. Let, let me um, use an example, and that is the issue of slavery. If there was a candidate who wanted to reinstitute slavery, I'm pretty sure that even Andy Stanley would want us to take a side on that issue. But why is that? I think, here's my theory. I think it's because it's comfortable. No one's debating the issue of slavery anymore. It's not controversial. Taking the right side of that discussion is kind of easy. Um, and here's something I've noticed about that is that it's usually easier to take positions on things that are already resolved, like they're in the past. But our nervousness, especially among big Eva voices, is that we're not sure really with confidence how to apply scripture to current problems. We're very concerned about wanting to be on the right side of history today. But the real courage is the pastor who applies the scriptures to issues happening right now in our current context. He's not just always using examples, Jim Crow and slavery in the past, things that nobody's debating, things that nobody's talking about. Nobody finds that controversial. But if if the pastor won't take a position on issues today, and he kind of paints this picture of just love your neighbor and you know, don't pick a side, you know, don't be involved in politics, separation of church and state, this world is not our home. That That is deeply troubling because it kind of makes it seem like he, 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 he might not know like how to apply scripture to issues of today. Um, if a, a candidate for office supports the killing of preborn babies, like I really want pastors to not be hiding behind the, I don't want to be too political position. Please take a side. Let's all take a side on that. If a candidate wants to redefine marriage, I think that's something we should, we should take a side about. If a candidate um, for office wants to 
rename the the mutilation of children to gender affirming care. I think Christians need to take a side about that. Christians, it, it's we're going to have to take some sides. It might not be easy. And even if your pastor isn't courageous, I want to encourage you to be courageous in your home and have these discipleship conversations with your kid. And yes, that's not to say there certainly are many issues where Christians can legitimately disagree and about the right approach to solve a particular problem. That should be a good debate, a robust debate. Let's have some Bible study. Let's have some back and forth. Let's, let's have some data. But there's other issues, certain issues that we need to be courageous. We just need to be clear. We need to stand up and say like, no, this is not okay. And that there is more to political engagement than simply saying, love your neighbor, or just simply saying, Jesus wasn't a Republican or a Democrat. That That's not helpful. People are smart. The people in your congregation, pastors, are smart. And they, they want more. They want more discipleship than that. They want more guidance than that. And I'm not saying that pastors should focus on all their details of their personal political views, but on some level, it is the pastor's job to educate the people in their congregation about their worldview and to guide them into discussions about how that applies to their everyday life and to go beyond this whole like superficial love your neighbor kind of a thing. So we, we've got to do more than that. As I close, I want to just talk for a minute about John 18, where it says that um, Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. And what does this have? What does this mean? And the context here is um, Jesus is on trial before Pilate, and and he he's the, the accusation against Jesus is that he's a king, and he says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. I think of what Jesus is saying is that he's speaking that the reality of his authority, the origin of his authority, doesn't come from human kings. He's not like Pilate. He doesn't have a boss over him who is Caesar. Jesus' authority comes from the Father in heaven. And Jesus' kingdom operates in a way that cannot be understood by according to the world's terms or and and at times it is in a fundamental tension or antagonism with the workings of an evil world so yes jesus's kingdom his authority is not of this world but that doesn't mean that jesus's kingdom has no bearing in this world jesus came to call people from all nations to himself to create one new people and those people are intended to have an impact through their obedience, through their life transformation in the real world in which they live. Jesus had the expectation that people would live out their faith and that it would have a salt and light impact on the culture, would be the the, the leavening effect of the yeast in the dough, and it would be played out. So just because Jesus's kingdom is not of this world doesn't mean that it has no impact in this world. On some level, God's people should make manifest to the wicked world the right way to live, to reflect God's eternal moral law. Now, I recognize, you know, 
There's differences of opinion right now about what the end goal should be. Should we engage in some form of Christian nationalism? Should we work toward recapturing the ideals of classical liberalism? There's all kinds of differences out there. I'm not going to arbitrate that here, but I welcome those conversations. There should be a competition of ideas of what is the best way to talk about these solutions and implement them. But I don't think it should be controversial to say at least that Christians ought to be publicly engaged in public conversations about policies to preserve the biblical definition of marriage, the biblical definition of the family, the ideals of work and to, to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. Like to me, these, these should not be controversial ideas. In my candid opinion, no informed Christian should fall into the trap of thinking that politics in Christianity are exactly the same, but they shouldn't fall into the opposite trap of thinking that Christianity and politics are utterly different. There is a connection between them. There's touch points. There's places where they touch each other. Elections have consequences, as they say. Policies will be enacted. Policies affect people. Okay, I'm going to read the comments here. Okay. Question. I haven't watched the other series. You might address it there. Do you have suggestions for how to do that when the only available candidate are extremists on both sides? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't address that in those other series. Um, the biblical standard for electing leaders I find helpful is um, I think a good set of standards to look at is in Timothy and Titus of the types of qualities that God looks for in a leader in the church. I think there's a lot to be said that there, there, those are good qualities in general for a leader, you know, someone who's humble and doesn't have addiction problems and rage problems and is able to teach in a Christian context, but in a public context, is able to have good rhetorical skills. They're able to explain their position and why. Um, it says in the Old Testament, I think it's in Samuel, to elect leaders who um, are wise and fear the Lord. Like these are some good, solid principles. But what do you do when both candidates are sort of equally wicked? Well, then I would look at policies. Um, I would look at what policies do they stand for and try to vote for the policies that most closely resemble the Christian worldview, particularly on, on issues related to family, protecting the unborn, um, law and order, and those kinds of things, because those are, those are what's in the biblical framework. So yeah, I, we're not electing Sunday school teachers. We're, we're electing people to enact policies. So my first choice, my first hope is always a righteous man. And, and that's a way to pray. When it says in the scriptures to pray for our leaders, a way that we can pray, um, when it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we ought to pray, uh, ask the Lord to raise up godly leaders who will protect freedom and protect the innocent, punish the guilty, um, and to deliver us from the scourge of abortion and the trans agenda. Pray for leaders who will stand up and expose wickedness. 
um, and pray for peace so that the gospel can go forward and more people can come to faith. So that's always my first response is praying for God to raise up godly leaders. But if if both of the, the candidates are equally wicked, let's say, um, then I would say, look at what policies do they stand for and vote that way. One thing that, you know, I think is would be great to think about too, is I actually think local elections um, can, can really impact our lives even more sometimes than national elections. Make sure that you're out there voting in, in your local elections and educating yourself on the issues and particularly the judges. Okay. Oregon's a complete mess. Yes. Especially in Portland. We vote Tuesdays. My choices are basically far left or extreme right conspiracy theories. That's that's tough. That's really, really tough. Um, and maybe, again, look at their policies. Um, see where their policies are resting. Tough choices sometimes. That is for sure. Um, okay, does Facebook have anything? No. Uh, all right, Alicia O'Connell is asking, did I give a definition of Christian nationalism? No, I did not, because it wasn't the focus of this conversation. Uh, I just, in general, refer to it as principles based on the Bible. But that's a whole growing conversation, and I will not wait, be waiting into that anytime soon. So that's on, you know downstream of where I'm at right now in my own process. Brittany on um, Facebook says that she experienced a lot of conflict and anger in her relationships in 2020. I, I hear you, Brittany. And, and sometimes it's, it's best, you know, that we have to maybe not discuss these things in that venue. I don't necessarily always think social media is the greatest for persuasion. Sometimes it is. But, um, you know, focusing maybe more on a conversation related to the worldview issues um, and talking to your pastor about equipping the congregation on worldview issues um, might be a way to, to begin to work toward unity. Do I bring up Mel on uh, YouTube asks, do you bring up your political leanings in conversations with friends? or just deal with issues and principles. Usually if I don't know the person very well, I only um, talk about issues and principles and like saying things like, you know, I'm not sure how I think about that, or this is an issue that I'm working through, or this is my understanding of the scriptures. And I'm trying to figure out how this impacts how I will vote. You know, I'll kind of, put it in, in that kind of language. Um, but really my hope in this stream is just to encourage people to have a little bit more thoughtfulness about the, the connection from their worldview to how they vote. So, well, with that, that is the end of tonight. I hope you have found this helpful. Uh, again, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share out this stream with others if you found it helpful. And I look forward to your feedback and comments. And I want to leave you with a scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in authority 
so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Pray for peace in our country and around the world so that the gospel may go forward. Pray that the Lord will raise up godly leaders who will protect the innocent, punish the guilty, and protect freedom. Pray that God will raise up leaders to expose wickedness and truly implement God's standard of justice. God bless and good night. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.